Hi everyone, welcome back. It's the birthright busy season and I just got back from taking another amazing group of people to Israel, hence why the podcast was on hiatus for a bit. But let's get back into it. If the Arab-Israeli conflict started with an accidental shooting in 1920, back in episode 36, then the conflict really exploded into its modern manifestation with misplaced furniture in 1929. This piece of furniture wasn't a lumpy cot on a birthright trip, which has started its own share of confrontations. No, this was a specifically Jewish piece of furniture located at just about the most sensitive holy site on earth, the Western Wall in Jerusalem, which was not, in 1929, in Jewish hands. To really understand what happened in 1929, let's jump ahead for a second to 2017. In July of that year, three Arab Israelis, that is, non-Jewish Arab citizens of Israel, shot dead two Israeli border police near one of the entrances to the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is the giant platform above the Western Wall where the gold dome of the rock is located, as well as the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Islam's third holiest place. In the following gunfight, the three Arab Israelis were killed. The two Israeli police who were killed were not Jews, but Druze a distinct and tiny ethnic minority in Israel which grew out of Islam, but are not considered Muslims. Following the attack, Israel briefly closed access to the Temple Mount and searched the area, finding more weapons. Two days later, the Israeli police installed for the first time metal detectors at the entrances to prevent further attacks. The response from the Muslim authorities was to demand their removal and to call on all Muslims to protest. The following weeks saw riots and violent clashes between Palestinians and Israeli police, in which three more Palestinians were killed. So why were the Palestinians so upset about extra security measures? Because the Palestinian leadership led them to believe that in installing the metal detectors, Israel was changing the status quo. The status quo refers to an agreement made between Israel and the Muslim authorities back in 1967 when Israel captured Jerusalem. In order to avert what many feared would become a holy war at the time, Israel made a deal. Israel would maintain control over the old city of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount, but Muslim religious officials would have authority over the Temple Mount itself. In other words, Israel provides security around the Temple Mount, but doesn't interfere with Muslim activities up on top. But the idea that Israel is actually secretly trying to take over the Temple Mount has been a popular trope since 1967 used by Palestinian leaders to whip up Muslim anger any time there's a slight change to this status quo, such as installing metal detectors. And although every Israeli government has made the effort to reassure Muslims that there is no such secret plan, any change to the status quo was used as a pretext for protests and riots, as in 2017. But as we're about to see, this fight over the status quo goes further back than 1967. It really goes back to the Ottoman Empire and came to a violent head in 1929, in which a series of horrible riots, pogroms really, put the Arab-Israeli conflict on a whole new level that can be seen and felt even today when I visit the old city with birthright. So, the riots of 1929, we ought to know it. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Rumor has it, and they've never found the original document, but rumor has it that a few hundred years ago the Ottoman Sultan issued a ruling that allowed Jews to pray at the Western Wall. 
At the time, Jerusalem, including the Old City, including the Western Wall, was under the control of the Ottomans. They were Turks, not Arabs, but still Muslim. And the Western Wall didn't look like it does today. I mean, it was still the same wall. That's kind of the point. But instead of today's huge open plaza that can accommodate thousands of people, back then it was just a cramped alleyway behind a neighborhood of houses that backed up to within a few feet of the wall itself. You had to really squeeze in there. And generally, the only people who went there were religious Jews living in the old city and the occasional pilgrim. As the Jewish population of Palestine and Jerusalem grew in the 18 and early 1900s, more Jews inevitably sought access to the wall. The Ottoman status quo was in place. Jews can have access to pray at the wall, but they can't make any alterations to the site. By the 1920s, Jews weren't even allowed to bring in seats for old people to sit on while they prayed. Muslims worried about mission creep. If they allowed any alterations, the Jews would turn the place into a holy site and take it over. Which, of course, Israel did in 1967, though again, that leaving the rest of the Temple Mount in the hands of the Muslims. In the 1920s, a few Zionist leaders, too, were making provocative comments about someday taking over the Temple Mount, and some Jewish religious figures talked about replacing the Muslim Dome of the Rock with a Jewish Third Temple, replacing the Second Temple, which had been destroyed by the Romans back in the day. Back in the day being, you know, the year 70. Muslim leaders took those comments, blew them out of proportion to inflame Muslim fear and anger about the Jews taking over Jerusalem. The chief culprit for this was Amin al-Husseini, the intensely anti-Semitic Grand Mufti of Jerusalem we've been talking about. He served as both the Muslim religious leader in Palestine and the political leader, since he was recognized by the British government as the top Muslim representative. Remember, the British were still in charge of Palestine during all this. In fact, they were super-duper in charge. Back in 1922, the League of Nations made Palestine an official mandate of the British Empire. The mandate system came out of World War I, when the German and Ottoman empires dissolved and their territories, like Palestine, were sort of floating out there without anyone in charge. The League of Nations appointed various powers, usually the British or the French, in charge of these territories, but with two caveats. Britain and France, or whoever, was not allowed to annex the territory to their own countries, and they were responsible for preparing that territory and its inhabitants for future statehood. They also had the responsibility to protect the rights of minorities living in those territories, since the majority population was supposed to be the one eventually taking over. There were about a dozen mandates around the world, including the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, and some Pacific islands. There aren't any left today. But the point is that from 1922 until Israel was established in 1948, Palestine was often referred to as Mandatory Palestine, or the British Mandate, or just the Mandate. And what it means is that Britain had overall responsibility for the goings-on there. This meant that the British authorities got involved when Muslims and Jews argued about the Western Wall. The British, not being particularly known as a great bastion of furniture expertise, had a rough go of trying to mediate this dispute which just kept getting worse. The trouble started during Yom Kippur in September of 1928. The Jews at the Western Wall put up a mechitza. A mechitza is a divider between men and women, who under Orthodox Jewish custom are not supposed to pray together. 
There's a permanent mechitza at the wall today, but back then it was kind of a mobile temporary screen that could be pulled out to stretch across the alley and then squished back together for storage. A British mandate official noticed the mechitza and mentioned it to the Muslim authority at the Temple Mount, who demanded that the Jews be ordered to take it down, since it was technically a violation of the status quo. The British ordered the Jews to take it down, the Jews refused, and the following morning British police stormed into the Western Wall, fought with a group of Jews praying there, and destroyed the Mechitza. In the year following this incident, both sides moved towards the extremes. Amin al-Husseini used this pretext to incite Muslims all over the Middle East. He created and fed a Muslim paranoia that has persisted to this day, that the Jews were planning to supplant or even destroy sacred Muslim sites, especially the Al-Aqsa Mosque up on the Temple Mount. He blamed the Jews for any violent reaction that Muslims may take against them. And indeed, Jews coming to pray at the Western Wall were often attacked. So what Al-Husseini did was take a conflict that had up to now been mostly economic in nature, it was about immigration and jobs and land, and made it religious, what the author Bruce Hoffman calls the emotive religious component that energized and radicalized his followers. Al-Husseini made opposition to the Jews on a religious level a central component of the young Palestinian national movement. And then he made it a central part of the Middle East. Previously, a Muslim living in, let's say, Damascus, might not particularly care about Jews and Arabs arguing over a piece of land in Palestine. But he would care about a perceived Jewish attack on Islam's holy sites. So in this way, Al-Husseini made Arab nationalism not just about the Arabs, but also about attacking the Jews. And from this point forward, Arab leaders up until today would use Al-Husseini's trick to incite their followers to attack the Jews. Anti-Semitism was an official strategic and tactical tool of the Arab national movement. But the Arabs weren't the only ones engaging in hyperbole to whip up their followers. Zionist leaders also used the confrontation on Yom Kippur to adopt provocative language about the Jews reclaiming the Western Wall. Jabotinsky was his usual aggressive self, encouraging Jews to keep protesting until the wall is once again in our hands. Even Ben-Gurion got into the act, promising that the wall would soon be redeemed, that is, returned to the Jews. Now, there's an important distinction here, in that the Zionist leaders weren't calling for the Jews to take over the Temple Mount or the Muslim holy sites, but only the Western Wall, and, to be really precise, that alleyway in front of it. So all of this got built up until August of 1929, when the conflict escalated into massacre. In mid-August, the Jews organized a rally of hundreds of people to march to the wall, which the British police noted was noisy but peaceful. They sang Hatikva and raised a flag as if claiming the wall for themselves, two things guaranteed to piss off the Arabs. Al-Husseini responded with something unprecedented, he marched his own followers to the wall. Muslims aggressively demonstrating at the holiest site in Judaism, destroying prayer books, tearing out notes left in the wall. Even the British were shocked by the move. And then, the next day, someone got murdered. Emea Sharim, the Orthodox neighborhood of Jerusalem that is outside of the old city, a 17-year-old Jewish teenager went to retrieve a soccer ball that had been accidentally kicked onto the property of an Arab. An argument ensued. The boy was stabbed, and he died a couple days later. Over the next few days, Jews attacked Arabs in retaliation, and Arabs attacked Jews in counter-retaliation, low-level street fighting that destroyed property and caused some injuries. 
But then, on August 23rd, 1929, with tensions boiling over to match the heat during the hottest month of the summer, Jerusalem exploded. Thousands of Arabs attacked the Jewish quarter in the Old City, which was inhabited mostly by Orthodox Jews. Hundreds managed to flee, but many could not. Accounts differ, but around three dozen Jews were killed that afternoon, including some at the Jaffa Gate while the British police stood by and watched. The police were so ill-equipped that they worried that if they tried to stop it, the Arab mob would turn on them too. Jerusalem was running with blood all over the city. And the attacks were not limited to Jerusalem. They quickly spread all over Palestine. And in some places, they were catastrophic. Perhaps the most horrific took place in Hebron. There, the Haganah, the Jewish Defense Force, tried to persuade the Jewish community to organize a defense, but the community refused. They had such good relations with their Arab neighbors, they said, that this wouldn't be necessary. And in some cases, they were right. In one of the most rarely discussed or acknowledged moments in the Arab-Israeli conflict, Hundreds of Arabs in the city of Hebron actively hid their Jewish neighbors from the rampaging mob that last week of August 1929, opening up their own homes for the Jews to take refuge. But it wasn't enough. A community which had been in Hebron for hundreds of years, and in which Judaism buried its founding fathers and mothers more than 3,000 years earlier, was almost completely wrecked in just a few days of total violence. The Arab mob swept through the Jewish quarter of the city, murdering, raping, and torturing Jewish men, women, and children. Those who weren't murdered outright sometimes had their hands cut off or their eyes gouged out. In some instances, the mob left the Jews with impossible split-second choices between life and death. As Daniel Gordas recounts in his recent book on Israeli history, the mob invaded the home of a local rabbi who was protecting a group of terrified Jews and offered him a choice. In exchange for turning over the Ashkenazi Jews, the Jews of European origin, the murderers would let live those Jews in the home who were native to the Middle East. The rabbi refused such a bargain. So he was killed where he stood, in front of a full group of Jews who followed him seconds later. The rioters attacked the famous Hebron yeshiva, killing a couple of students there before finding dozens more hiding in the home of one of their teachers. Forty-two teachers and students were murdered, Stabbed, stoned, or beaten to death. The one single British cop in the entire city fought back against the rioters, protecting as many Jews as he could and killing as many of the attackers as he could before he ran out of bullets. It took hours for reinforcements to arrive. Horror was also visited on Sfat up in the north, a frequent visit on our birthright trips. In the same alleyways where my birthright groups shop for souvenirs and get pizza from that Yemenite guy, you who know what I'm talking about know what I'm talking about. At least two dozen Jews were murdered and many more horribly injured. Many were trapped indoors when their attackers set fire to homes and shops. The mob even burst into a Jewish orphanage, murdering the helpless children stuck there. Those who escaped death instead were mutilated. All in all, nearly 30 Jewish communities were attacked throughout Palestine. More than 130 Jews were killed. Slightly less Arabs were also killed. A few were killed by Jews in self-defense, or in some cases retribution, but most of the Arabs were killed in fights with the British police and military. It was without a doubt the worst tragedy yet in the growing Arab-Jewish conflict.
The British, the Jews, and the Arabs all drew their own conclusions from the 1929 riots and acted accordingly. The British kept calm and, well, studied on. They formed a couple committees to investigate what happened and why, and drew up a couple papers, passing judgment and setting forth new policies, all of which went progressively more and more against the Jews as the 1930s began. The Shah Commission laid blame for the violence on the Arabs, saying that there was no excuse for the vicious attacks on Jews and the destruction of their property. The Shah Commission acknowledged that the influx of Jewish immigration had benefited the Palestinian economy, including the Arabs. And yet, because the Zionists had been allowed so much immigration and had bought up so much land, the Arabs, said the commission, were justified in fearing a permanent Jewish takeover of Palestine. And this fear and frustration led to the explosion of violence. Look, the Arabs weren't totally wrong to be worried about this. The point of Jewish immigration was to slowly but steadily build a Jewish majority in Palestine in order to ensure that the future Jewish homeland would be run by Jews. And the Jews were also, quite legally, buying up the most productive agricultural land. The Jewish National Fund, which had been created in the early 1900s to develop land on behalf of the Jewish people, had a controversial policy. Once land was bought by and for the Jews, it had to remain in Jewish hands. It could never be sold or leased back to non-Jews. This meant that once the productive land was bought, the Arabs essentially lost it for good. This policy, by the way, remained until 2007, when the JNF struck a deal with the Israeli government. The JNF, as a private organization, sees its mission as specific to the Jewish people, not the general citizenry of the Israeli state. But the Israeli government, a democracy, cannot infringe on minority rights, and so could no longer tolerate JNF's policy. The deal was that the JNF would lease land to non-Jews, and in exchange, the Israeli government would swap in an equal-sized amount of land back to JNF, ensuring that the amount of land in Jewish hands would always remain the same. And today, JNF owns around 15% of Israel's land. But back to the Shah Commission. Shah recommended that the British should issue a policy outlining exactly what they intended for their mandate in Palestine, and specifically in regard to Jewish immigration. So it seems small, but this was a huge setback for the Zionists. Because, in their view, the British already had a clear policy objective in Palestine. The Balfour Declaration. Balfour had committed Britain to supporting the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine, a goal that was also baked into the League of Nations mandate. Unrestricted Jewish immigration was the essential ingredient for establishing the Jewish homeland, so any effort to chip away at that smelled to the Zionists like a reversal of Balfour. Subsequent reports in the year after the riots confirmed the Zionists' fears that the British government was turning against them. The wife of a senior British colonial official told Chaim Weizmann, I can't understand why the Jews make such a fuss over a few dozen of their people killed in Palestine, as many are killed every week in London in traffic accidents. Other British officials publicly stated their opposition to further Jewish emigration and blamed the Yeshuv's institutions for provoking Arab discontent. The British seemed on the verge of repudiating Balfour altogether and permanently restricting both Jewish immigration and Jewish land purchases. Jewish opposition was so strong that the Prime Minister was forced to write an open letter to Weizmann, promising to uphold the Balfour Declaration, yet at the same time not entirely backtracking on those recommendations. So, as usual, Britain's muddled policy flip-flops had the effect of first raising Arab hopes, then dashing them, and at the same time leaving the Jews confused and outraged. 
As for the Arabs, the 1929 riots had the effect of strengthening the Mufti, Amin al-Husseini. His hatred of the Jews was made inseparable from Arab nationalism, and the cause of opposing the British Mandate and the Zionists turned from politics and economics into a religious holy war. The subsequent Arab political parties and paramilitary organizations that he created in the 1930s were thus oriented violently against the Jews, which was to have major consequences later in the decade. The Arabs, too, were learning that violence against the Jews in the name of opposing Britain's policies could have the effect of getting those policies changed, which is not a great reward feedback mechanism. And as for the Jews, the devastation of 1929 crystallized their thinking. For over a decade now, Jabotinsky had been agitating for a powerful Jewish defense force that could bring the fight to the Arabs. The Haganah, the Yishub's underground proto-military force, had trained thousands of Jews in self-defense. But the Haganah also had a policy that they called Havgalah, meaning restraint. The Haganah could use violence to defend Jewish communities, but they could not attack the Arabs first. For Jabotinsky and his followers, Havgalah was too little, too late. The riots, they argued, demonstrated the need for the Jews to meet violence with violence. And when this proved too controversial for the Haganah, a group of fighters formed their own separate paramilitary faction, one that would go on to have a bloody and very controversial history in pre-state Israel. They called themselves the National Military Organization, or in Hebrew, the Irgun. In ancient times, a strange object in the sky would foreshadow momentous events on Earth, usually of a dark and foreboding nature. During the most festive Jewish holiday of the year, Purim, in March 1929, tens of thousands of partygoers in Haifa, Tel Aviv, and Jerusalem looked up to see a 770-foot-long airship, or blimp to you Americans, hovering over Palestine. It was the Graf Zeppelin, the world's largest airship making a triumphant voyage from Germany to the Holy Land and back again. The trip was organized by prominent Jewish Zionists in Germany and Vienna, and had on board senior officials of the Weimar Republic, who dropped confetti on Tel Aviv, drank endless bottles of wine from the Holy Land, dipped below sea level to skim the surface of the Dead Sea, and even read from the Book of Esther on board, the biblical story traditionally read on Purim. A few months later, as riots raged across Palestine, the Graf Zeppelin floated over the Golden Gate to San Francisco Bay. The flight over Palestine was intended as a celebration of a technological feat, of the revival of Jewish culture and activity in Palestine, of the influence of Jews and Zionists in Europe. But in a few short years, the Graf Zeppelin would come to stand for something else entirely. For emblazoned on its massive fins would be yet another symbol revived from ancient times. The swastika. That's next time. Thanks for listening. Oh,